Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Thanksgiving Sunday, October 10th, by me, Rob Schaff. Today is the fourth sermon in our Fall 2021 sermon series entitled Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Hello, my name is Rob Schaff, and I'm the pastor of discipling here at Sardis Fellowship. But I haven't always been the pastor of discipling here at Sardis Fellowship. I've had other jobs. And when I was 19 years old, living in Regina, Saskatchewan, I worked at McDonald's, which was super awesome. A lot of fun working at McDonald's, uh, by and large, because we had a really awesome manager. Uh, She was this young girl who was doing her MBA at the U of R. And uh, she also worked at McDonald's full-time as she finished up her studies. And she did such a good job of making McDonald's a really fun place to work. She was a great manager. She didn't micromanage. She had leaders kind of working under her who she trusted, shift supervisors, that just made it a really fun environment. And we kind of learned how to do our jobs. And and uh, she was great. We all loved her. Um, she, after about a week or two of me starting there and all the people that started with me, having worked for a couple of weeks, once we got our tasks kind of down and we knew what we were doing, she called us in one day for a staff meeting. And at the staff meeting, she was talking to us and all the other new hires, me and all the other new hires, and she was saying she's going to give us kind of the corporate uh, values, what McDonald's was all about as a company. And so officially stated, here are McDonald's values. First, to serve, to put customers and people first. Second, inclusion opening our doors to everyone. Third, integrity, doing the right thing. Fourth, community, we want to be good neighbors. And fifth, family, because we get better together. And uh, as a 19-year-old, I was fresh out of two years of Bible college, and I loved those values. I was really on board with those things. It was speaking my language. I wanted to serve. I wanted to be inclusive. I wanted to have integrity. I wanted to be a good neighbor. I wanted to be part of a big loving family. I was on board with all of those things. And so, you know, she was talking in this meeting and she kept telling us about everything that McDonald's was all about. And um, near the end of the presentation, she was talking about the importance of treating customers with respect. And she said, she asked a question along the lines of this. She said, because what do we value here at McDonald's? And me, without missing a beat, I kind of spoke up and said, serving and including and doing the right thing. And I rattled off all of those corporate lines that aligned with the interests that I have because of my faith that I was super excited about. And everybody kind of laughed. And I was like, hold on, why are people laughing? And my manager kind of smiled and had a smirk on her face. And she paused and she said, we value money. That's what all this is about. Making money. Making money is important. McDonald's is a business. We want to make money. And then, of course, I laughed to myself because, yeah, of course, that is the value at McDonald's. It's the value behind all of the other values. It's the value that's so obvious uh, that's so obvious to people that she kind of felt like it didn't even need stating. But apparently, uh, it did need stating because I was missing it. It's so basic to how business works in our society anyway uh, that, that people just kind of take it for granted. They assume it. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about money and values. Uh, the Bible warns against the dangers of money and greed in verses like 1 Timothy 9-10, to which reads like this, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
The Bible also encourages financial prudence in verses like Proverbs 13.11, which say this, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. The Bible also, of course, encourages good stewardship in verses like Luke 16. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? There's also verses like 2 Corinthians 9, 7, 8 that encourage generosity. Each of you should give what you have decided in your own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Jesus even goes so far as to claim lordship over money in our lives. In Luke 16, 13, he says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the Pharisees who loved money heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And I think that's worth a reread. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. That is what our story in Acts is all about today. It's all about money in the eyes of others and God knowing the heart. Our story is found in Acts 5, but before we get to that, uh, it really starts in Acts 4, verses uh Acts chapter 4, verse 32 onwards. And it starts on a real high note. Stuff couldn't be better. It goes like this. All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. So the early church is living out tangibly what Israel was actually expected to live out all along and what Jesus commanded his followers on multiple occasions. This was good news for the poor. Sell your possessions. It was justice for those who lived in injustice. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Each day has enough worries of its own. God will take care of you. So good. And it says that they were one heart and mind. That means not only that they agreed with each other, but it also means that they regarded the needs of others as their own. They got what money was for. It was for blessing others, and that's what they used it for, and they all kind of got that. It's not about me. It's about the other. It's about looking up for each other, and they could agree on that. They found unity in their action because they were united in their faith in Christ. They shared everything they had. And way back actually in Deuteronomy 15 verse 4, it says, There will be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. So even back in Deuteronomy, this was actually the plan. And it's just now in the early church, it's actually happening. And now in the church, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Now, that sounds pretty great. And you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, how exactly did that work? How did that happen? Well, it's funny that you should ask, because if we keep reading, uh, it says exactly how that happened. It happened like this. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, 
brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, and he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. So from time to time, people would see a need, and they would meet that need by selling their possessions. This one guy, Joseph, called Barnabas, sold a field that he owned. He brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet, and it was taken, and it was distributed to meet the needs of others. It's that simple. It's incredible. What you do with your money says a lot, and what you do with your money and your possessions, it says a lot about, you know, what you value. It says a lot about what you're really about. And so this man that they called the son of encouragement, he was clearly about Jesus. Now Mark 10, 24 to 25, is Jesus saying that it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But here, this guy, Barnabas, he sells his field. He gives all the money to the church. He's living out the kingdom of God because all things are possible with God, even wealthy people releasing their wealth. Barnabas is just one example. This attitude seems to be what characterized the, resur- uh, the church at this time because the resurrection of Jesus had changed everything. It reordered people's priorities. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in their hearts that it was undeniable and tangible. And the evidence that was undeniable and tangible is that there wasn't any needy persons among them because God doesn't want people to be needy. And so God's people didn't let that happen. God's people didn't let people be needy. Now it's no wonder that they were able to give such a powerful testimony in their community, such a great witness to the resurrection of Jesus because people listened to the gospel preached and then they saw that this community of people were living so counterculturally. They could see the difference that Jesus was making in their lives. It's kind of like a little bit of heaven had broken through and, and it was making its, itself known on the earth. Now, isn't that amazing? Now, the second part of the story, starting in Acts 5, it couldn't be any worse. It goes like this. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to just human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. And then some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. <clears throat> this story should make us very uncomfortable. 
For one, it deals with money. And we live in a society where there's a lot of money and there's also a lot of poverty. And two, it feels like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. I mean, after all, they gave some of the money to the church, right? So what's the big deal? What's really going on here? Well, this is what's going on here. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of God, or sorry, who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. What did Ananias and Sapphira get wrong? First and foremost, big picture, they got Jesus wrong. Acts 4.32 says that all believers were of one heart and mind, but it's clear that Ananias and Sapphira weren't of that one mind. While everyone else was about putting others' needs ahead of their own for the glory of God and for the witness of the church, Ananias and Sapphira, they weren't about that. They were only about themselves and their own glory. Ananias had allowed Satan to fill his heart with the selfish lie, keep the money, no one's going to know. And the result is disastrous. They sold a piece of property and they knowingly kept back part of the money for themselves, but claimed that they gave all of the money to the church. They lied about it not only to Peter and the church, but to God himself. And Peter is perplexed. He says, you didn't have to sell your land in the first place. It belonged to you. You could have kept 100% of it. No, there wouldn't have been any problems. And the money you got was at your disposal. You could have given some of the money and kept some of the money for yourself and there wouldn't have been a problem. You could have given 10% of it and said, this is 10% of the money that we got. Glory to God. God would have been glorified. Clearly, I dropped my... uh, Dropped my thing. You can just leave that part in. It's kind of funny. (laughs) Clearly, they weren't killed because they didn't give 100% of the money. The problem in their hearts and in their action was that they lied. The text doesn't go into why Ananias and Sapphira did this, but it does make it clear that while Barnabas honors God with their money, with his money, Ananias and Sapphira didn't. Ananias and Sapphira decided that lying about their generosity would get them what they really wanted. And we actually don't really know what they really wanted. But it could have been what they wanted was to be honored in the community of the church as being generous without actually having to be generous. So honor that they didn't deserve. It could have been that they were faking it until they were making it as followers of Jesus. You know, they didn't really... They just kind of wanted to blend in with the crowd. It could have been that they were trying to intentionally buy influence in the church because being generous would have people respect them and they wanted to kind of have their cake and eat it too. It could have been that they just wanted to get people off their back because they didn't actually value what the other people did. It could have been that they were just like, these people are being so generous and they're not, like they won't leave us alone. And okay, yeah, we gave it all to God, right? But one way or the other, they conspired to lie. To God. And God isn't fooled. God knows their hearts. God sees what is hidden. God sees that they value what is detestable in his sight. Now, the consequences are severe. Both Ananias and Sapphira die for this lie. When Ananias dies, great fear seizes all who heard about the incident. But when Sapphira dies, great fear seizes the whole church and everyone who hears about it. There is so much that could be said about this story, but first, you know, what do we even do with this story? Before we talk about that, what don't we do with this story? 
Well, for one thing, we do not exploit this story for our own ends. Here's what I mean. Here's an example. Sometimes it's tempting to speed on the freeway. And, and you know, when I am tempted to speed on the freeway, my brain kind of goes in this mode where I say, well, as long as I'm not the fastest person on the freeway, it should be okay. So if, if someone's going 125 kilometers an hour, I might go 119. That's still like 19 kilometers faster than I'm supposed to be going. But my logic, my brain says, well, if someone's getting pulled over, it's that guy. It's not me. But that logic is still super flawed because you see, I am still speeding. I'm still breaking the speed limit. And it might be tempting to do something similar with this story. It might be tempting for us to spend time to figure out what got Ananias and Sapphira killed and then live our lives six kilometers slower than they did. What do I mean? Well, here's an example. We might take away from this story that it's actually okay to be greedy and hoard our wealth to ourselves so long as we don't lie about it. As long as we're being honest, that's good enough. But that's, that's not what we're called to live out. That's not the one heart and one mind that we are called to have unity in when our faith in Jesus changes our lives, right? We don't, another thing that a temptation we might fall into and that we don't get to do with the story is we might make this a story about what happened to them while ignoring that it has any implications for what it might mean to us. It is not like their deaths were coincidental. There is a lesson to be learned here. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So what do we do with this story? We like to imagine how awesome it would be if we could heal on command, if we could work crazy miracles, if we could multiply fish like Jesus did and feed the masses and, you know, solve world hunger and do all these problems and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, through the power of God. And that's true, but we are incredibly turned off by the idea that God hates sin and punishes sinners. We like the miracles, we don't like the punishment. We're happy enough when heaven meeting earth means a little piece of heaven here and now, but when having heaven meet earth means judgment for the sins of people who should know better, we are not as excited about that. We are afraid because that has pretty serious implications for us because we know we are sinners. We want God to show up with power in our lives, but not that kind of power. But that isn't up to us. That's up to God. Ananias and Sapphira being killed as a consequence of their sin is as much heaven meeting earth as healing and sharing and all of that other stuff. Commenting on the story of Ananias and Sapphira, Tom Wright says this, If you invoke the power of the Holy One, the one who will eventually right all wrongs and sort out all cheating and lying, he may just decide to do some of that work already in advance. That's what's happened here. God showed up early and sorted out some of the cheating and the lying. The punishment in this story underscores some gospel truths that I think we should already know. Here they are. First, Sin, missing God's mark, is serious, and the wages of sin is death. Second, all of us are sinners. None of us are perfect. We have all fallen short of God's mark. Third, our salvation is because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It is a gift of God's grace. Fourth, God is still holy, and in grace, he desires truth for us. And fifth, God knows our heart, and 
to God we are accountable. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits for those who have never obeyed God's good news? Now, I think most of us are pretty comfortable with points one, two, and three. But when it comes to points four and five, some of us get a little quiet. Some people might think this story almost feels more like an Old Testament story, back when God was all judgment and punishment and war. And certainly it echoes a few Old Testament stories pretty explicitly, namely the sons of Aaron in Leviticus 10 being burnt alive for offering improper sacrifices Second, Achan being put to death for secretly stealing the plunder in Joshua 7. And third, King Uzziah getting leprosy for messing around with worship practices. All of that is Old Testament stuff. And we're New Testament people, right? So we don't got to worry about all that old judgment stuff. But maybe that's the point that this story is trying to make. With Jesus, yes, we have a new covenant. We have grace. But we still have truth. And God is still God. And he still cares about the holy witness of his people. Because we are the reputation bearers of God. Jesus himself says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And sometimes I think we live like we thought Jesus was kidding. So with all of this in mind, we need to wrestle with this story in our own lives. First, regarding money. Often what we really value in life is reflected in what we do with our money. Now money can be something that we use to bless others and money can be something that we are tempted to hoard for ourselves. Many look to money for their salvation and their security, but we don't. We look to Jesus and trust God for provision. And like the early church, because of what Jesus has done for us, our perspective has changed. And that means that we see and treat money in our lives differently. For Ananias and Sapphira, it is clear that money was the foothold that the devil had in their lives that filled their hearts with selfishness and moved them to act upon that sin in a way that God dealt with severely. And money can be a foothold in our lives too, because money promises so much. And honestly, it kind of makes good on those promises a lot of the times. I want blank, and it costs blank. And if I have blank, then I can have that, right? Like, if if what I want costs a million dollars, easy. I get a million dollars, and then I can have what I want. But Jesus recalibrates our desires away from us and our selfishness and towards himself and his purposes. And more money isn't how we get more Jesus. As individuals, in our families, in our workplaces, And in our business practices, and especially as a church, we must keep money in its proper place. Money is a tool which enables us to live out that which we truly value, which is Jesus. And it should never be the main value that dictates the actions of our lives and activities. Now regarding knowing your, regarding God knowing your heart and your actions, You could actually go your entire life fooling yourself and everyone, but you're not going to fool God now or in the end. So what's the point? Stop now. Turn away from your sin. Turn back towards God. Ask yourself the same questions that Peter asked Ananias and Sapphira. How is it that Satan has filled your hearts? 
Or how is it that you let Satan gain so much influence in your life? And the second question, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of God? Or why are you flirting with sin and pretending that God doesn't care? Or why do you say that you believe in God, but then live like you don't think that God is of any consequence? Why do you say that there is a God, but then don't listen to any of the things that he says about what's important? God will know if your actions and your heart and your heart aren't in alignment, even if nobody else knows. And that's for better or for worse. And for Ananias and Sapphira, it meant death. It was for worse. But there are also examples in the Bible where this is for the better. Like, for example, in Luke 21, when a poor widow putting her measly two copper coins in the offering, in the eyes of people, it was nothing. It was worthless. It was laughable. But when Jesus saw it, he realized and he knew that her gift was greater than any wealthy person's gift because she was giving absolutely everything that she had to God because she had a heart that longed for God. So don't try to justify yourselves in the eyes of others or in your own eyes as you pursue your sinful desires. It's pointless. Instead, value God with all of your heart and realize that the only thing that matters is what he sees of you. Now regarding grace and truth, you know what the scariest part of the story of Ananias and Sapphira is? It is how easy it is to live our Christian lives the same way that they did, lying to ourselves Lying to others, it's disturbing to think about how empty churches would be if the standard that God applied to Ananias and Sapphira got applied to all of us equally across the board. I am pretty sure that I would be dead along with all of you. I know firsthand how easy it is to convince myself that me and my sin are flying under the radar, undetected, and that what people don't know won't hurt, won't hurt them. But that's not true at all because God knows and God knows the way that it's damaging his witness, our witness to him, right? God knows. God knows how we are damaging his reputation with our hidden sin that we convince ourselves is not a big deal. Now, there's an expression that I'm sure you've heard. It goes like this. It's not illegal if you don't get caught. Now, we can think that way when we're speeding on the freeway, even though it's not true. And if we are accustomed to escaping the consequences of our actions, we can even start to believe that this is just how the world works. But that's not how God's kingdom works. Even at sometimes, even if sometimes it feels like that's how the world works, that's not how God wants it to work. That's not what God wants his people to be about, and he is not having any of it. And if God seems like he's behaving harshly with Ananias and Sapphira, maybe then we don't take God seriously enough. Now, this sermon series is entitled this. It's entitled, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. And this is exactly what this story is about. What would have happened to the witness of the early church if Ananias and Sapphira got away with this little scam? It would have been, the witness of the church would have been severely compromised because the church, rather than being united in Christ, would start to be deteriorating and would have a culture of lies and deceit and people trying to one-up each other and just a bunch of falsehood. And the church would be no different from the rest of the world and the witness would have been completely ruined. Do we think the integrity of our witness is any less important to God today than it was back then? 
There's this old DC Talk song that uses this uh, Brennan Manning quote at the beginning of it, and it goes like this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. And that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The Christian life isn't about how much we can get away with. It's about desiring God in everything. It's about desiring God in everything and about the love of God in our lives, properly ordering every single one of our affections. Now today is Thanksgiving Sunday. And I think the biggest lesson that we can learn from Ananias and Sapphira on Thanksgiving Sunday is this. If the truth of our actions aren't motivated by love for Christ and the gratitude that we have for the grace that we have received from God, then we are living outside of what God has for us. We are lying to ourselves. We're lying to others. And worst of all, we're lying to God. And if that's where you are at today, well, thank God that today you have an opportunity to set it right. You have an opportunity to turn away from that sin and back towards God. If the truth of our actions are motivated by the love for Christ and the gratitude that we have for the grace that we have received from God, then we will indeed be his witnesses. I want to end with uh, this passage that I read. I referenced earlier in the sermon, but we didn't read it, so I'd like to read it. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at a proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. If we can do that, a little bit of heaven is going to be breaking its way onto earth. Here are some questions for you to think about uh, as we end the sermon. First, take a look at your bank and credit card statements. If that was all that people had to go on about who you are, what would people say that you valued? How about your browser history? Two, money is one possible foothold for the devil to exploit in your life, but it isn't the only one. What are some other areas of life where the devil's lies can grow unchecked, leading us to sin? And three, what are you thankful for? How do your actions reflect the thankfulness in your heart? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.